All right, so let's have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, this chilly day. We thank you for the time of Advent when we uh, try to anticipate the coming of Christ and put ourselves in the shoes of those who lived before his coming. Lord, we thank you that we can't do it perfectly. We can't uh, pretend we don't know what amazing things your son Jesus would do when he arrived, how he would live a sinless life, how he would reach out and touch the lepers and welcome the outcasts and love the least of these and then uh, die a sinner's death and and pay for our sins and then rise from the grave. Lord, we we pray that uh, knowing that would just enrich our experience of Advent and of Christmas. Uh, I pray that you would be with uh, everyone in our church, those who are ill, those who are recovering from surgery, uh, those who are traveling, and especially, Lord, those who are gathered, that we might hear your word today and be blessed by it. Uh, And I pray that you would guide me as I uh, try to speak your word uh, this morning. I also pray that you would guide our conversation this morning in our class here as we uh, begin to talk about whether or not we can keep your uh, law, whether we are able to do it. And Lord, uh, we pray that you would open our eyes to just further uh, depth of who you are, how much you love us, what lengths you would go to to save us. Uh, and Lord, we pray that uh, we would become more and more the people that you made us to be. pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we are on question 65. Let's do it together. Is any man perfectly able to keep the commandments of God? No mere man since the fall is able in his life perfectly to keep the commandments of God, but does daily break them in thought, word, and deed. Sounds a bit like the confession we're going to uh, pray together for communion this morning. Uh, I have an old-timey sermon illustration. Uh, it's about Dr. John Gill. Does anyone know who that is? Because you probably should. As Baptists, Dr. John Gill. Let me give you the background. There was a guy named Benjamin Keach. He wrote Keach's Catechism. Uh, he was a very important early uh, Baptist. He was the pastor in Horse Lie Down. How... how Charming does that sound? Well, they were being persecuted there by the Puritans, but it sounds charming. Uh, And he became pastor in 1668, and in 36 years or so, he was the pastor. And over time, that church became uh, known as the New Park Street Church, and then after that, the Metropolitan Tabernacle. And the Metropolitan Tabernacle is the one that Spurgeon would pack full of people. Uh, So this guy who had signed that 1689 Baptist Confession of Faith is actually the predecessor at the same church by another name as Spurgeon. In between the two is Dr. John Gill. Uh, He wrote an incredible commentary on the whole Bible. If you ever like to keep stuff like that on your phone or near your bed in case you you don't have to have bookshelves and bookshelves, uh, you can just go, let's see what Dr. Gill has to say. Let's see what Matthew Henry has to say. You know, you have a few of those single volume things. I wouldn't rely entirely on them, but uh, I don't join those who, who think they're a bad idea and tell you to, to get rid of them. Uh, so anyway, that's an awful lot of, of preamble. Dr. John Gill was once preaching on human inability, meaning the inability to obey God of himself. A gentleman present was much offended and took him to task for degrading human nature. Pray, sir, said the doctor, What do you think that man can contribute to his conversion? 
He enumerated a variety of particulars. And have you done all this? said the doctor. Why, no, I cannot say I have yet, but I hope I shall begin soon. If you have these things in your power and have not done them, you deserve to be doubly damned and are but ill qualified to be an advocate for free will which has done you so little good. <laughs> uh, this all reminds me of one of the most interesting conversations I think I ever had, which was about two and a half hours long in the car with my pastor, Dr. Ed Pikey, uh, on the way to, I don't remember what, some kind of clergy gathering or something um, when I was a seminarian. And he asked me, we, we probably got in the car at eight o'clock and we, you know, we had this long drive. And he asked me, hey, have you sinned yet today? He would always do stuff like that, just curveball. I, I don't know, I said. Probably I have. I, yeah, I probably have because I drove here. So I probably, I probably sinned. I drove to the church. And he said, what'd you do? And I said, I don't know. I, I, but I, I bet I did sin. And he said, well, why would you say that? I said, because, you know, human nature being what it is, even our you know, best deeds are tinged with the filthy rags of our flesh and blah, blah, blah. And probably I was impatient at a light and probably I had an uncharitable thought. But he said, well, you know, is this going to bother you? Do you think you need to ask the Holy Spirit to reveal to you this thing that you've done today that you don't remember so you can confess it? And after a while, I was like, okay, where are you going with all this? And he said, I don't think it's necessarily true that you've sinned today. I think people always assume they're always sinning and they have this defeatist attitude that they'll always be sinning all the time. And I don't think it's a great thing. I think that uh, perhaps we should have this goal of, I can go an hour without sinning or three or six or even a couple of days. And I said, I think that's way out of bounds. I don't think anyone can go a couple of days without sinning. Sometimes I wonder if I can go 10 seconds. And we had a very interesting back and forth. Um, I think probably over time, I've begun to understand more what he meant. And I, I think that if I ask each of you, if you've sinned today, if you can't tell me what you did, maybe, maybe you haven't. Although, again, as a Calvinist, I would say even your best deeds like coming to church are tinged with uh, things that, that need to be burned away by the, the spirit and uh, washed by the blood of, of Jesus. Um, but he would not have been able to affirm this particular document because it says that we do daily break God's laws. We, keep, we can't keep his commandments. We do daily break them. And so if he thinks you can go a couple of days, all of a sudden now we're, we've got two differing ideas. But I think it's interesting that even this very hard-nosed document put together by these Baptist divines with all of their emphasis on God's sovereignty and man's depravity would not say we do hourly or constantly, but daily. Like, you, you will not get to a point, they're saying, where you are going to be free of sin in this life, free of its presence and power in your life completely. But if you get to the end of the day, and you think, oh, I did sin a couple of times. If you're a mature Christian, perhaps you don't need to say, oh, no, I probably sinned 15,000 times. Uh, perhaps the couple that the Holy Spirit brings to your mind are the couple because you are becoming more and more mature in Christ. Anybody here sinned today? 
Sean, what'd you do? I went faster than the legal speed limit. To get oh here. boy! All right. And I encouraged him to do that. That's a worse sin, I think. Anyway, no, nobody here didn't sin yet today. When you're by yourself, you don't usually do anything. I have thought. That that is. Uh, I, I hold on. I want to. I want to address what Donna just said. I think that that may not be as true as you think. Um, you know, the Desert Fathers thought that by, you know, these early monks, by going off by themselves, that without this kind of influence of all the other people and other people to make them angry and, and for them to lash out at or whatever, that they would be able to be sinless and found that when they were alone with their own hearts and their own carnal desires and their own thoughts, uh, just different sins uh, came in and filled the void. Um, I don't know, it's maybe sometimes, depending on the person, easier when you're alone not to sin, or maybe more difficult. Um, what about... Uh, it's that thought part. If I'm by myself, I have too much time to think. crazy, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, Donna brought it up for me, because I was thinking, yeah, I could probably go two days if I could just stay here in my house. I didn't have anybody to be responsible for. Nobody called me, nobody asked me for anything. I think I'd be pretty good for a couple of days. Now remember, when we confess our sins, we say we've sinned against you in thought, word, and deed, which are the three categories here, by what we have done, what we have failed to do. Okay. Yeah. So just because somebody wow. didn't ask me for help doesn't mean I know in the back of my mind, oh, yeah. somebody's having a hard time and didn't pray for them, or somebody's needing this and didn't like help mm-hmm. provide it or whatever. Mm-hmm. Right, and I mean, I, I don't have the hard and fast rules, but I think the very idea of, and I'm not suggesting any of you are doing this, but the very idea of the, the mon- monastics, the Desert Fathers, or whoever you're trying to pull away from society, the, the notion of, I'm going to withdraw so that my holiness will go up and I will score points with God. Already, just by focusing so much on me, um, they may have kind of tilted it. And, you know, the sin is that they're not going out. And, of course, over time, as monastic communities formed, um, and monastic orders, they did go out from the monastery and help people and feed people and care for people and stuff. So I, I think over time, it's kind of self-corrected. But yeah, there's there's no life hack. There's no shortcut to... Isn't it kind of dangerous to think that you haven't sinned? Hmm. Why is that? Well, the whole point of the Old Testament is to point to Jesus and tell you you can't not sin. So if you think you haven't sinned, I mean... The truth is not yeah. Right, yeah. First John tells us... First John tells us that if anybody says he has no sin, that he deceives himself and the truth is not in him. But I'm not saying that you think you have no sin, but rather that you haven't sinned, say, in the past 15 minutes. When you're listening to someone preach or you're singing a hymn, and you get to the end of the hymn, sometimes you might think, oh, I don't even remember the third stanza because my mind was on this other thing, and that was probably sinful. I probably used God's name in vain during the course of that. I, there was some latent idolatry because I was putting something else in the center of my mind when it should have been. But maybe you get to the end of it. It's your favorite hymn, and every word and every syllable that came out of your mouth whether it was in tune or out of tune, God doesn't care, was directed to his glory. And could you safely then sit down and say in the past three minutes, I've not sinned? 
I, I, I'm, I'm wandering away from my tribe here because um, Calvinism in general is going to emphasize that we're just always sinning. And I do think that I've seen, having spent 25 years real deep in that, in that crew, that it begins to have this defeatist effect of, well, what are you going to do? We're all always sinning anyway. One of the guys that I uh, really loved is preaching, Julian Chavigian, who is uh, Billy Graham's grandson, very great communicator, popular preacher, uh, took over for uh, D. James Kennedy and Coral Gables. And I loved his preaching because it was always like, yes, you're going to sin, but, but there's grace. And, you know, take the heavy yoke off of you. It's not on you and all this. And then, of course, it comes out with the guy who was having like three simultaneous extramarital affairs. And you go, okay, there's probably some danger to just... Eh, I'm going to sin. Luckily, this is, that starts to eke, if we're not careful, toward let us go on sinning, that grace may increase. All right, well, let's... Yes, sir. I think um, when it's probably easier to look at others and think, oh, they haven't sinned in the past three minutes, you know. So I think it's possible. But sometimes we'll get, when we look inward, we kind of say, no... What do you think is the longest you've gone without sinning? If you had to guess, who would say they've gone a day? Yeah, me, me neither. I, I think I might have because, like, if you're sick and you sleep most of the day and you, just, yeah. and you don't really even have coherent thoughts. Right, there's, yeah, it's not incumbent on you to do yeah. anything. Yeah, I think when I was a baby, I didn't do much. <laughs> and then, yeah, well... Was, like, was that because what's your in play? In society? If you had the core strength, though, you probably would have. Uh, <laughs> well, yeah, because the minute you get that, you you do as a kid. You do things that like you. At first, you don't know that this is not the thing you're supposed to do, but then you immediately, if you're corrected, you do know, but you still do it. You know. Vipers and diapers. <laughs> Our creed says what we have failed to do. Also, right? Mm-hmm. Can, we, can, we, can we do more? There's always more to do. Well, there, yeah, there's always more to do, but Jesus didn't sin when he said, okay, that's all the people I'm going to heal. Now I'm going to go off by myself. And, you know, I think that we, we don't want to put a heavy yoke of the law on ourselves like, well, I sinned today because I took a breather. And during that breather, I could have been calling a morning Christian and praying with them. Uh, I think you want to think in terms of failing to do those sins of omission are generally the flip side of a sin of commission. You know, was I lazy today? If I was, then I failed to do something that I, was I, you know, was there sloth and gluttony in my, marking my day? Okay, that was me failing to be industrious, but, but you know, I could have had a longer to-do list. I think now you're getting into Pharisaic stuff that just doesn't really apply to the Christian life um, and, and shouldn't make us say, okay, I've, I've got to confess Gosh, you'd literally have to confess the infinite number of things that you could have done in a given day but didn't do. And that sounds a lot to me like we're back into the monastic, you know, wading out into the freezing cold water and flagellating our bare back with a, with a whip in order to, you know, make up. We have freedom in Christ, right? So we don't want to just focus on, I didn't do a great job today. I could have done better. We want to say, God, help me to do better tomorrow. Show me where I may have sinned today, sin of omission or commission, and now it's out of the blood, and there's freedom. It's a, it's a tension, and, and again, I don't want to sound like a broken record. Maybe I do. 
all good theology has to have that tension. If you have a, a, the, the classic example, if you have a God who's one and three, that's not a contradiction, it's a tension. And if you try to relieve it by saying, oh no, he's mostly three, uh, but one family, you know, three persons, and, but, but you know, they're, they're related. Kind of like how uh, my family has three, but, but we're one. Now you've gone too far to one side, you've relieved the tension, but you've lost the doctrine. Or you emphasize the one. Oh no, no, it's all one God, but wearing different masks and playing different roles. So he's the father, and he's like, hey, now I'm the son. Okay, it's called modalism. You've eased the tension, but now you've gone into a heresy. Split the difference and go right to the middle. God's two. That's a heresy that doesn't even have a name because it's so weird. Same thing with every doctrine and much of Christian life, and I think this is one of them. We don't want to say, I can reach this state of being so holy, I don't have to worry about sin, and I can get to the end of the day and go, eh, no, I didn't sin today, and not even take time reflecting and, and asking the Holy Spirit to reveal to me, uh, convict me. But we also don't want to fall on the other ditch, on the other side. Reminds me, we're reading Pilgrim's Progress in the, in the men's group, and there's, he's in the dark going through the valley of the shadow of doubt, and there's a ditch on one side and a quag on the other, and he keeps, by trying to avoid one, being in danger of falling into the other. Uh, and we don't want to fall into this notion of well, forget it. I'm a sinner. That's who I am. No, you're not. You're a saint, right? You're a holy one. That's what we read 1 Corinthians. It's to the saints in Corinth. Read the rest of it. They're sinning like a ton. Still saints, right? So we don't want to have this defeatist notion. Even when we read an answer like this, which is true, that no mere man since the fall is able in his life perfectly to keep the commandments of God. And the good news is you don't need to. Uh, and so, yeah, don't let the enemy ride in there with this condemnation stuff. And, and you know, you could have done more today. You were, uh, what, what was that where you took 25 minutes just by yourself to have a cup of coffee and flip through a, a magazine? That was, oh, uh, come on. We're, we're free in Christ and we don't have to worry. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So I think that's kind of the, the tension. And I think that maybe... Ed Pikey and me were both just looking at it from different ends of the, the tension and both kind of right, you know, like one of these things where you say, did I believe or did God, by electing me, almost believe for me? And you say, yeah, sure. Um, so what does it mean to not sin or positively to keep the law? Let's wheel it back a ways here uh, to the question itself. What, what, what do you suppose this means? I mean, before you dig into the meat of it, you got to know the, the, we have to agree on the vocabulary to keep the law or not sin. I, I always read, I read a phrase, when Abraham made his covenant with God, it stood out to me, he said, before, right before the covenant was made, he said, like, something like, be blameless. Mm, okay. <clears throat> blameless. That's a pretty common Old Testament word, usually paired with yasher, upright, upright and blameless. Anybody here? have that as like their Twitter bio? <laughs> Probably somebody does. Maybe not here. That's not an indictment on the people in this uh, room. <laughs> I, I really want to do that later today just to see what people will say. Pastor, husband of Aaron, upright and blameless. Uh, retweets do not equal whatever. Okay, um, let's, let's, let me ask this. I've got, I've got uh, two kind of definitions or possibilities by which you might use a ruler, a yardstick to measure your life. 
Does it mean to be perfectly holy, yielding constantly with uninterrupted obedience to God with your life and in your heart, and of course your speech because that flows out of your heart, not doing, saying, or thinking anything you shouldn't, not failing to do, say, or think anything you should? Or does it more mean um, a notion of loving God and loving people, which tends to be how Jesus boils down the law when people come to him. How, what does it mean to keep the law? And he'll say, well, what have you been told? Well, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Yeah, that's interesting because I think when you say keep the law, what does it mean to keep the law perfectly? And you're thinking about what Steve said, being blameless and upright. You would tend to the first definition, which is clearly what the Pharisees would have tended toward as well. Yeah, the emphasis... When the Pharisees would be on how many little mint and cumin leaves did I pull off? Jesus wasn't about that. Yeah, I guess like in the first example, it's all about measuring how much did you do? How much didn't you do? But if you're loving, you're not really measuring that, right? If you're mm. loving God and loving your neighbor, well, I mean, I guess you could try to measure that, but that seems like a sin in and of itself. Like, like David counting. Yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah. And that seems like something that would just... It, it wouldn't be something you'd have to keep track of so much. Because you would just continue to do it. Yeah. We're going we're gonna to talk next week about breaking up kind of thought, word, and deed a little bit more kind of... Uh, delineation of, of these categories. But I think that however you do it, whether you are thinking in, did I ever for a moment take my emphasis off of glorifying God and put it on something else? Did I ever for a moment uh, have a selfish thought? Did I ever, or if you say, well, did I throughout this day love God with all myself and love my neighbor as myself? Uh, either way, you're going to wind up having to acknowledge at the end of the day, at the end of a day, that I haven't done it, that I haven't kept it, I've broken it. I think about Abraham wheeling and dealing with God over the cities of the valley. You remember this story? Uh, I'm going to destroy all these cities. And he's like, well, my nephew Lot lives there. Well, you better tell him to get out. Well, hold on. What if we can find... And what does he start with? I don't remember. 50. I think he starts with 50. Yeah, that sounds about right. It gets down to 10. If I can find 50 righteous men. Okay, yeah, okay. Yeah. All right, well, what if I can find, you know, 20? And, and, and he keeps, and, and there's in the King James, I love it, because he's so polite. He's like, oh, pardon my, you know, whatever. Pardon my forwardness here. But what, what if there's only, and, and he gets down to the, and, and still, what happens to those cities? brimstone from heaven because there aren't any. Well, what if we were to say God's judgment is coming upon this world? All right, God, we know we've read that you're, you're going to come in judgment and it's throughout your, your word, but what if I could find 50 righteous people now? You think we could clear that yes. out of 7 billion? You do? Yes. Okay. You, you would... In Abraham's time, Christ hadn't come. Mm. Looking at the people through the eyes of Christ instead of... I mean, if we have his righteousness truly, then yes, you'd be able to find that thing.
Right. And I think that, that kind of gets us to the, the crux of this, that the question almost is only for the unsaved or to remind us of the gospel. Uh, when you say, can you perfectly keep the commandments of God? In a sense, we can say they're already kept for me. So N slash A, right? I, there, every promise is yes and amen in Christ. All my sins are paid for, but more important than that, all of his righteousness is now imputed into me. But ultimately, if we're going to just look at the individual's righteousness or lack thereof, there has only been one person in every generation from Abraham to now that was truly upright and blameless, and that was Jesus. Um, what about this notion that uh, it's daily is the kind of measuring uh, the 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 standard, this daily breaking of the law. The Talmud says, no man can go a day free from, one, thoughts of sin, two, wanderings in prayer, three, an evil tongue. Now that isn't thought word indeed exactly, but it's pretty darn close. Thoughts of sin, wanderings in prayer, an evil tongue. Is anyone getting nervous when you think about your mind wandering in prayer being sin? Like that happens to me so much. And over the years I've, you know, convinced myself, and I think rightly so, God isn't angry with me or you know, not hearing the rest of the prayer because my mind has wandered. But uh, that shows you how very serious people have often been about this keeping everything just so, and yet acknowledging you can you can be the strictest Pharisee, you can be the holiest priest, but you can't go one day without sinning. For them then, of course, the answer was animal sacrifice, the economy of grace of the Old Testament. For us, it's already taken care of in Christ, and yet we have to acknowledge the sin, confess the sin, and be forgiven. Looking then from the question to the answer itself, um, Barb immediately just said no. You knew that. <laughs> Started with no. Um, it, it, the answer is no, but then there's actually two qualifiers in there. Can you find the two qualifiers? The the two kind of outs. No mere man since the fall. Right. No mere man since the fall. We couldn't just say no. No one can do it. Because that would be to deny our own salvation. People don't often think about the role that Christ's perfect keeping of the law actually plays in their salvation. We focus so much on his death, and it's just kind of a footnote. Man pictured has not sinned, or whatever. But his keeping the law, our salvation, his work for our salvation begins with Christmas, right? Or with even perhaps the Annunciation. Christ now come to this earth... And he's going to live a perfect, sinless life that we couldn't live. And that gets to then be counted as our life in God's eyes, our righteousness, our righteous living. Since the fall, why, why is that there? I guess, I mean, if Adam was created without any sin, there was potential to keep the law. And he must have kept it for a while. Because there is a point at which it is broken. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so day after day, God coming in the cool of the evening and, and walking and uh, communing with mankind, 
This is the covenant of works at play. Nothing has been broken. There's not any social media at the time. There isn't any traffic. There isn't any... Uh, For a while, there's not even another person. Yeah, you can't gossip about Eve. Who are you going to talk to? Uh, so it's, <laughs> it, it is maybe a faint praise uh, for, for, you know, the, the pre-fall world. But uh, somebody flip over to Ecclesiastes 7.29. It's odd to think that there was a time when never sinning was the norm. And what's more, all that mankind had ever known. 729. See this alone I found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. Is this something special that God gave to Adam? A superpower that we've lost, a vestigial kind of Eden thing that's now no longer with us. I don't know. Like, I mean, you think about Adam, he didn't go through childhood or teenage years or anything like that, right? He was already a fully formed person. So, for a person who gets born as a baby, it seems impossible to go through life without sin. Because you have like that time when you're even a toddler where you're defiant about something. I mean, you'd have to have a really easygoing, compliant child to like have them never, ever be mad at their parents. That is definitely the first time I've ever heard that take. That, uh, yeah, that Adam's sinlessness was due to having been... I'm not been... saying it's due to that. I'm just saying that for people who are not starting out as mm-hmm. adults, I think it's impossible. Well, you do have the question of what does it mean, for example, when, when we read that before the child is old enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, uh, X will happen in a, 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 that Isaiah prophecy. Um, are you culpable for sins uh, as a, a little child? Or, or is there some kind of age of accountability or, or something like that? I don't know the answer to that. Um, but I, don't, I almost think that being able to be trained up from childhood to know what is right and have it ingrained in you would be an advantage. But, I mean, even if you were trained up correctly, you obeyed everything that your parents and your teachers said, you think you wouldn't have even one uncharitable thought toward another kid, one jealousy, one, you know, I don't know. It just seems... Like I mean, obviously, we all have had the question. You're saying if Adam had been, you know, in a world before the curse, made as a child. No, that's not what I was saying. Oh, I that was the question. Okay. Um, I guess that my my circumstance aside, I, my my question is really: Was there something intrinsic to Adam as a man and Eve as a person? Like, was there something in them that we don't have that made them able to? Not sin. Or something they didn't have. Well, clearly not, because they did sin. So. Okay. <laughs> I mean, God, we're, we're all the same. My real question is, why did God let there be evil in the world? I mean, why is it that the devil gets to rule? 
Yeah, that was one of the earlier questions in the catechism. It just doesn't... That's going to be my first question. <laughs> I bet it's not. I bet you're going face down to the ground, throwing some crowns his way and going, what were all those questions? I don't know. Um, I said my first question. I didn't say maybe my right. first word. <laughs> I, I, I'm just going to be there a really long time. If I get to ask a question, that's going to be my first one. And my second one's going to be, um, I brought my dog's ashes with me. Can we like, bring it up? <laughs> you can't take it with you. Um, yeah, that's a, that, that is a, a big question that a lot of people have. Um, I think that, uh, yeah, at this point, we can't rehash that one. Um, I can send you our conversation uh, on MP3, and I'd happily get together with you and talk about it. But that's a, a whole other huge can of worms. Uh, I, I think the answer ultimately is, is that no. I know the answer is that no. Adam didn't have something intrinsically special about him. He had the image of God. That's that. We have the image of God. And so it was not a foregone conclusion that he would sin. There wasn't also a flaw built into him that he would definitely sin. There was not something that he had that, that kept him back. That we, In fact, we have the Holy Spirit guiding us and uh, directing us. And so there's every reason to believe that I think if Adam could get through, now granted his setting was serene, stress-free, sin-free, uh, already, but mostly, yeah. I mean, if you love animals, uh, you know, then you imagine being able to spend all your time just taking care of a garden without thorns. That's a good point. Without weeds. And <laughs> yeah, so I was thinking, because Jesus said, you know, love God and then love people. If there are no people, and then uh, he didn't know to be envious of, of the tree of knowledge of evil. Right. Well, there, there was another person, uh, because God said it's not good for man to be alone. Right, you just don't know how long he was without another right. person. Or how long after Eve came, the fall came. Whenever she started nagging him, probably, I don't know. <laughs> so that was pretty quick. Oh, man, we have a really comfortable couch in our basement, I'm not worried. Um, the, other, the other one is no mere human. Obviously, that's in there because of Jesus being sinless. Uh, original sin having been passed down by ordinary generation, question 18. You may remember that from like two years ago. Um, and Jesus not coming into our world by ordinary generation. Kind of the opposite question then. Did Jesus have something by virtue of not having a sin nature, uh, not having inherited this thing from Adam? He needed to not have that in order to be our perfect substitute, but did that give him kind of the unfair advantage? Did he have something that if, if we just had that, then we could ourselves go, you know, walking around amidst people who are mocking and trying to trap us while remaining sinless? I don't know how you can answer that. Well, well yeah, if we were only God, yeah, we could. <laughs> <laughs> we would have to be willing to do what he did, right? Well, including all of us. Right, and Jesus, when he's tempted, isn't answering out of being only God. He's answering out of his true humanity. So, you know, he, in fact, he's tempted to rely on his divinity and make a bunch of bread and eat it, throw himself down and be worshipped. Instead, he says, no, I'm here as the true human 
to live the, the life that these people can't and then die the death that they should. And so he eschews that. So Christ comes and he doesn't, I mean, he's tempted, we're told, in all ways as we are and yet remains without sin, which means there was temptations that we probably would associate with indwelling sin, the flesh, etc., uh, coming his way via the world and the devil, and he resisted those uh, just as you and I can. And he's the example that we're trying to follow. If we believed really that, uh, you know, well, he's God, so no problem. He can just, it's like, it's like playing a video game with God mode on and the bullets just bounce off of you and you can just walk around. It's not even fun to me, but, you know, he was kind of walking through, uh, you know, uh, like Mario when he's blinking and, and everything bounces off of him. I think that cheapens what Christ did, and it definitely means that we can't look to him as an example for us and how we can live because none of us are God. So we have to remember that Jesus came and, you know, we read in Philippians, set aside his glory, was born, had to grow in stature and grace and, and favor and wisdom, had to learn to walk, had to become old enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, chose to come through the exact same pathway we did. Unlike Adam, had to go through, uh, imagine, can you imagine, uh, I guess the same question Aaron just posed, being an adolescent and having all the angry hormones and all the other chemicals and everything raging and, and not sinning. Being a young adult and wanting to kind of make a name for yourself and break free from whatever and whatever, and not sinning. Um, it's, it boggles the mind, and yet Jesus is there as this constant reminder that sin doesn't have to have a hold on us. We, none of us can go, I probably agree with the Talmud, a day without sinning in thought, word, and deed. But certainly we can, in any given situation, not sin. It, we know that there's always a way out, there's always the armor that we're given. There's always the option to choose life and not death. Going all the way back to Deuteronomy. I've laid before you, blessing and cursing, life and death, choose life that you might live. And in any given situation, when you go, oh gosh, it would feel really good to whatever, trash this person uh, behind their back, like we were just talking about gossip, uh, pretend that I didn't make this income because there's no way that they're going to find out it was under the table, uh, yoink this thing, whatever. There's always the option for those who are in Christ, not by our willpower, but by the power of the Spirit, which is how Jesus also resisted temptation, to say, no, I choose life. No, where's, the, where's that escape hatch? Where's that way out? And it's a way out and up to the foot of the cross. So I have a question. If you have the Holy Spirit, and it's through the Holy Spirit's power that you can choose not to sin in any given situation, why do Christians ever sin? Because the Spirit lusteth against the flesh, and the flesh against the Spirit. They're always at war. Uh, there's an old sermon illustration that I think gets into a kind of a heathen dualism, maybe, uh, <coughs> that you often hear, that it, uh, and it's, it's actually like doubly racist, uh, because it's... Yeah, the old, the, the old Indian chief who tells the young boy that living inside him are a black dog and a white dog, and whichever one he feeds is going to win. Uh, and 
I think that's kind of a broad cultural lesson that anyone could take um, if you removed the like outdated and offensive part of it. But for a believer, that's not, you know, we don't have these equally powerful forces inside of us. We can sear our conscience so that we are less sensitive to the Holy Spirit. We, we can. Uh, David even does that. Uh, and we can choose to uh, grieve the Spirit, and we can choose to sin and even fall into besetting sins. So you didn't actually answer the question, how was Jesus able to perfectly keep the law as a man if being God didn't have something to do with that? You said to, that that um, diminished the, what he did is to think that it was easy for him. Because yeah, because he's God, yeah. So then... Well, I mean, we see what he does when he's tempted. He's in the, the wilderness. He um, prays, fasts to prepare. Then the enemy comes, tempts him with the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life. He answers with scripture, stands firm on scripture, rebukes the tempter, and ultimately says, away with you, and, and he flees. Not a thing in there that you and I can't do. Right? What if you come up to a situation where you don't know which way it sends? Then I, uh, I suppose we're praying for wisdom, uh, and sometimes it seems like there's two bad options. Yeah. And, yeah, I, I, I don't know. I mean, sometimes... These things that seem like one of these is going to be disaster and one of them is going to be the answer, they're both a mixed bag just because it's a bad situation or something. And we find some of those situations in Scripture. I mean, there's lots of messy situations in Scripture. People screwing up and then trying to fix it or dealing with the fallout of other people's decisions. Um, but, yeah, I, I think praying for wisdom is is key there. We, it says in James, if you pray for wisdom, God will grant it to you. Uh, seeking counsel from other people, assuming you have time. Sometimes in the moment when you're trying not to sin, it's very quick. Um, yeah, I don't know. That, that, about the time when the, Jesus turned the water into wine. When he was first asked to do it, he said, woman, it's not my time yet. Mm -hmm. And then she insisted. So... If it wasn't his time to do it, was it a sin for him to do it then? Obviously not, because he did it. But uh, how, how, how would I make the right decision then? If I had the power to change water into wine. And, We're all glad you don't, but... Yeah, me too. <laughs> yeah, I, I guess uh, in that situation, he's honoring his mother. He's... Um, yeah, I, I don't know. It's, it's always been a little bit of a troublesome little exchange to me. Uh, especially the... I love I love the kind of passive-aggressive or, or, or sneaky way she goes about it because she doesn't say anything more to him. He, he says, woman, my time has not yet come. And she's like, just do whatever he says. And then she's out. And then, and then he's like, well, all right, I got it. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I guess I've never thought of the possibility of that being sinful. Yeah, I was going to say that not every given decision in your life is sin or don't sin. Some are just, I'm doing this thing or I'm doing this thing. And they're not sinful. Yeah, I don't think it's sinful that he turned water into wine. But would it have been if he hadn't? If he'd stuck to his guns? Is it possible that both of those answers to a difficult conundrum 
could have been righteously done. Honoring his mother, which is a commandment. But he was an adult at that point too, so it's like, oh. how long does mom get to tell him what to do? <laughs> there, I didn't see a time limit on yeah, it. <laughs> honor, honor your mother and obey your mother in all things are two yeah. different yeah, things. Honor and obey are two different things. Let me say this: I think that we do tend to make everything into a. I have to do the right, go the right fork in the road, or I'm I'm getting off track and probably sinning, or at least heading towards sin because we have a wrong idea in our minds of what God's will is. We think of it as this kind of maze that goes and there's only like one thing. Yeah, there's a path. And if I go to the wrong college or date the wrong girl or choose the wrong major or move to the wrong city or take the promotion or don't or have another kid or don't or whatever, there's a 50-50 chance I'm going to go the wrong way like a choose-your-own-adventure book and it's going to end with you have not followed God's plan, the end. When God's will is not like that at all, God's moral will, I mean, it's a circle, not a point, not a, not a maze. If you're not going outside of that circle, there are any number of things. Here's a crazy idea. Sean and Cindy just had their 40th anniversary. They're wonderful together. They could have lived a non-super sinful life if they hadn't gotten married. Aaron and I as well. Now, in God's providence and in his sovereignty, we say, yes, he, he brings people together and he does these amazing things. But there's not one path laid out that you have to find, you know, like, like an escape room or something and put all the clues together and go, oh, I see what God... No, God says, live your life, glorify me, do your best, choosing, making wise choices. And there's no sin in it unless we sin. I think we have this notion that we can accidentally sin while trying our hardest not to. And that is a rare thing. That's, that's, a, that's I think, taking the exception and making it the rule. I mean, come up with a scenario that you hit every day where you're going to accidentally sin while actively trying to follow Jesus. I, I have a hard time coming up with, with something that, without getting a little bit weird. The only thing that comes to mind is if you had like a person in your family or in your job or whatever that was really, really hard for you not to be like have sinful thoughts or like mean conversations or something like that and you saw this person every day. Like that seems like the thing where okay. like, you could try really hard and then you'd still fall. Right, if you fail, sure. Yeah. But if you... Oh, I see I'm saying if your decision is going to lead you into a... Uh, like, like, like Sean's uh, example of, of Jesus in the, the water to wine. It's hard for me to imagine. I mean, yeah, certain, certainly there's lots of times when we accidentally sin, meaning we had every intention of staying upright and we fall. Sure. But I mean, as far as uh, I really intend to honor God today, and then I look back and go, oh my goodness, I quit my job and started a crack business. Ah! I mean, like, there, there really, I mean, in Scripture, there's not this one meandering path we have to follow recognize that I mean read, read God's God's people the, the story of God's people in the Old Testament and then read Paul in the New Testament and think about how many different ways these um, pilgrimages from Israel to Mesopotamia and back could have gone how many different ways when Paul leaves on a missionary journey he's got a broad outline in his mind and it never goes the way he thinks it will and it always involves decisions of how long do I stay in Ephesus, preaching daily and teaching in the hall of Tyrannus? Mm -mm. Could he have stayed another year without sinning? Probably. 
unless God had specifically said to him, time to go. But we only have a couple examples of when God does that. The, the dream where the guy says, come over to Macedonia. You have the example of uh, he's kept by the Spirit from going in, you know, to certain areas. Other than that, he's free to, to live his life. So why do you think, when do you think and why do you think it became so common for people to have this idea of there is one special thing that I'm supposed to do with my life, and if I get it wrong at any of these little forks in the road, then I've wasted my life. Because it's very common. Yeah. There's a little of that treated in, uh, Dr. Meters had a book on discerning God's will. Did you guys do that? Yeah, it was, it was a little dry. It was a little dry, it, and it, it had a, a chart that was so confusing. It looked like a Rube Goldberg machine. Like you drop your conundrum into the top, and then it like, and then the answer would spit out the bottom. Sort of like that sort of illustration seems to feed that idea. Well, the, the idea was supposed to be in any given situation, God has given you tools to make an informed decision, and, and you, you know, if you're not going against his revealed will, you're not sinning. Right. Um, yeah, I don't, I, I don't know. That'd be an interesting dissertation for someone to, to write. How do did we... Maybe that's just like an American culture thing? Like a... No. Like, is that from movies? Like, where... I think it's probably been amped up by the, the kind of everything's written in the stars, you are the one Harry Potter, Star Wars, uh-huh. the Matrix kind of... Destiny. Yeah, like, like there's... You, I think that probably our self-importance... Because uh-huh. even though it's God writing the story... The whole, this whole notion assumes I'm the main character of it, and this is my hero's journey. And if I recognize, no, God's got a billion people you know, working toward his ends, and we don't even know what all the others are doing, but God is working these things together for his glory. I think you know, we've, taken our, our, we've taken our eyes off our own selves and made our own individual decisions probably of less earth-shattering importance uh, I might accidentally do the wrong thing and butterfly effect, you know, a whole country won't be reached with the gospel. God, God's going to reach who he's going to reach. We can choose to be used by him. We can sin and not be used by him. But, yeah, kind of get over yourself as the individual Christian, I think, and recognize he's given us our own little sphere. Just try to follow him. And uh, I guess we'll. it's already after 1030. We'll next time... Uh, get into talking about what about after we're saved Um, and then get into the question that I think will really be uh, maybe contentious are all sins equally grievous equally wicked Uh, I think there's a as another situation where the church has sort of embraced a notion that we don't find in scripture Uh, and maybe we'll have some lively discussion and debate